Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Hello, in today's episode, I have a very special guest who has a history with me going back half a century. Indeed, this remarkable woman is arguably my oldest friend. And whilst we've always lived on opposing sides of the world, occasionally passing each other like ships in the night, we've never lost touch, nor has our friendship ever diminished. Annabelle Hughes Aston is a writer, a journalist, a blogger, a chef, a lover, and one of the funniest people I know. She lives on a farm near the town of Livingston and Zambia on the banks of the mighty Zambezi River with her husband, Chris, their dog, a cat, and a million insects. So Annabelle, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, Pete. Annabelle, you're currently writing a book, which I've had the privilege of reading. And so let me begin with a quote from the book written by John O'Donoghue in his book, Beauty. I hope I can say this right and give it some justice. Although there are no guarantees in the kingdom of risk, nature shows us time and again that it is precisely at that moment of greatest risk the moment when everything could be lost, that the greatest change happens. It's a very evocative piece. Can you discuss? Because I think oh, it, okay. it tells you a lot about the book and about your life. Um, well, uh, throughout my life, I've, um, I've, I've been one of these people who sort of charged ahead and then crashed royally each time, you know, and... Um, there's never been a, a gentle uh, forward motion. It's either all go or all crash. And um, admittedly, there's been a number of things that have happened in my life that have made me crash. And these are tragedies and deaths and things which came at me without me even knowing about it beforehand. But That's I've also different. created a few of the crashes myself simply by being impulsive and um, and living a little bit too close to the edge when I was younger. But in this instance, I use this quote because I failed absolutely and completely royally in America after I had thrown everything, I sort of put, I risked everything in trying to create a retreat based around food and nourishment, um, which was just on a piece of land beyond my house at the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. And I had no money, and so I found an investor. And um, one year into the project, the investor wrote me out of it, and uh, I was left with nothing. So I had to sell everything. I had to reimagine a whole new beginning, and really didn't, I was flailing. I really didn't know where I was going to end up or what I was going to do. And so I sort of once again flung myself off that cliff and as my great friend our great friend Louise Stobart once said leap and the net will appear and that net happened to be in Livingston 
five months later. Incredible. I mean, it was quite a circuitous route you took. Um, and I'm yeah. going to get back to that in a minute. And I'm definitely going to get back to the book in a second. Um, but before we do that, um, let's talk about, let's go way back to when we first met. Um, I first got to know you. How, I mean, were you six or seven years old? And I would have six. been about eight years old. Yeah, I was six. Yeah. And you were, of course, you were my first crush. That didn't work <laughs> out very well. You were too. <laughs> you were too. I thought I might have been the one who might have put you off. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as a family, we spent most of the holidays together, mainly at Lake Kariba, but also in Mozambique. For me, it was very much a rose-tinted time. I don't think it was quite so much for you being the youngest <laughs> and a girl to boot. I completely agree with you. <laughs> oh, dear. I do completely agree with you, Pete. It wasn't as rose-tinted for me as it was for you. But um, I think many of my life skills were developed being friends with a bunch of feral boys, um, all of whom were older than me. And yeah, I, it made me tenacious. It made me um, incredibly defensive. <laughs> and it made it, me... It took with uh, you yeah. many years. I beg your pardon? The whole defense thing comes out very strongly in the book. <laughs> well, I... I I remember when I first got together with Chris, he said, when I look at you, sometimes I see this little girl with her fists up. And um, yes, so that's when that's it developed. Probably, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I spent my life. I mean, if you remember, James shot me, but that was in Kenya. That wasn't in Zimbabwe. So ah, my no, brother, James. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> and we used to spend a lot of time in our, uh, on our holidays at Lake Kariba. I mean, for the sake of the listener, Lake Kariba is, I mean, was, still is the biggest man-made lake in the world by volume. And, and, you know, even in length, 230 kilometers, it's pretty impressive. So it was very much our Cotas year. It was our Ribera back in the 1970s, wasn't it? It was hardly the Rivera, but anyway, we used to, you know, we were hardly the Rivera types, but we used to go there a lot, and we used to go camping a lot, and they were quite rough and ready camps, and, and there were dozens of people, it seems, and if you think about it, I mean, our group, we had a group called, uh, they were called the Hoods. Now, who were the members of that group, Annabelle? Well, the name was was created out of the Hughes and the Woods. That's how the Hoods came about. The ah, name. The Hoods. Gosh, I didn't even yeah. know. Well, you know, my memory. Yes, and so there were there were the Hughes. There was three Hughes. There were there was I mean, you, uh, Mandy and Duncan were a little bit older than us, so it was you, and it was Richard and Jane Manger, and Larry Norton, of course, and then. Um, the Hydes, Mungo, uh, Mungo Hyde. Patrick uh, and Russell. Uh, uh, uh. Um, no, he wasn't in uh. the original Hoods. No, no. It was just... Um, it was the... Oh, George, yes. Jungle George. That was his name. Do you remember? We all you were posh Pete. <laughs> you know, those, those trips, and I, in fact, I'm not going to go into too much detail because, in fact, I'm talking about uh, in my next chapter, my next episode after this in a couple of weeks' time about 
that trip. But there was one particular trip to the other side of the lake when we all went there. So that was all of those kids and their parents. I mean, there must have been 25 people to this huge, okay. big, you know, uh, this uh, this uh, fishing camp called Tishinga. And this one story I just want to relate, Annabelle, and I know that my memory of this might be different to yours. God help me bringing this up now. Um, <laughs> along the shores of, of Tishinga at Kariba, there was this massive crocodile whose name was Bismarck. Bismarck was about 16, 17 foot. He was a huge thing. And he patrolled those shores, that he owned those shores. And there was one particular day and all the adults were away fishing as usual. And we were in your little gray boat, um, you know, tooling about uh, amongst the trees, the submerged trees. And for reasons that are lost in the mists of time, uh, we left you on one of the trees. Now, um, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you here very quickly because you haven't remembered it correctly. You were given a baby, a little dinghy, a little red and white dinghy. Okay. Um, uh, for Christmas, okay. and Remember you that. and and you and Mandy decided it would be fun to go and row me out into these dead trees, and then you dared me to climb one, which of course I never ever said no to a dare because that was the only way I had any form of agency in amongst the group, and I climbed it, and you rowed away, <laughs> and I was rescued by Ben Norton coming back fishing at sunset. I sat there all afternoon. Are you sure a, it would have been that cruel and would have left you there all afternoon? And I'm telling you right now, it I is a can. famous, oh, it's hmm. a, I mean, I don't think I ever forgot it and nor did my skin. I, well, <laughs> and the other thing. In the heat. Let's not forget, your the crook of that tree that you were standing in could have only been about two foot above the water. I mean, Bismarck, <laughs> had he gone past he could have just snatched you up the tree of course pete I but got, then yeah, if I mean, you remember james used to my make viewers, us i uh, right now to you annabelle i apologize wholeheartedly <laughs> it's taken 50 years to apologize <laughs> but i am so sorry if that is really what we did it uh, is I, and I, then i mean it's amazing that we actually survived at all those trips because James made me and Jane Manger sleep on the outside of a dormitory in case, because we all slept under the stars, do you remember, far from our parents. And he made us sleep at the end of the dormitory in case lions came and we would get taken first, the girls, the only two girls amongst 17 boys or whatever it was. Us big rugged guys, we all slept. <laughs> right in the middle. Yeah, your brother James, now he was definitely my best friend outside of school. Uh, we didn't actually go to the same school together. And he was an incredibly strong character. Um, and of course, he flew too close to the sun. What was it like living with a, a brother like James? Um, James, James was, I mean, he was like a dictator <laughs> growing up. He had to be in charge or otherwise he just got absolutely an annihilated both William and me were the same but he was probably one of the most charismatic uh, dictators that ever lived he was so much fun he was hilarious he was so naughty I mean I 
put into the book how, you know, his school reports always let us off the hook because his were terrible constantly. And um, yeah, he he was always, you know, he was the leader, wasn't he? He was the well, one who took charge and of the hoods of everything. You know, I mean, being around was, James, being around James gave you a sort of invincibility, kudos. gave mm. you a strength, especially for me, who was hiding all those sort of inner gay feelings and everything. Not that James Aww. knew, but I wonder how yeah. he would have reacted to all of that. I think he would have I think it pretty well. He would have been fine. He would have been absolutely fine. He would have probably teased you. And then, um, and then it would have been absolutely fine, and, like and everyone it, is. We're it, all delighted. We, we very much <laughs> took separate paths, and I went to live in England, and he became a crop sprayer in North Africa somewhere. Um, no, in Zimbabwe, yeah, in it, Zimbabwe. But then he okay. went to West Africa for okay. just a three months, yeah, and Egypt, and that's what they did. They would go on little excursions. And, and then Kenya, was, uh, Egypt. He was tragically killed in a car crash. So even though you had your differences and he might have bullied you, I think he was still a great strength to you. And your eulogy yeah. at the funeral was full of love. Yes. No, I mean, I, we were all, he was only 26 when he died. So he, it, we were all devastated. And it was a major, major, you know, he was this larger than life character. So when he wasn't around any longer, we all sort of flailed. And, and that's larger than my uh, character, mm. Annabelle. Um, mm. You know, to give you an idea of the kind of people that he attracted, um, at the funeral, if you remember, I mean, I don't know how many people were at that funeral, 200 people? It was in the gardens mm. of your farm at Galloway Estate. Mm. Um, I remember it very well. The crop sprayers did a, a V formation flyover the guests and dropped his ashes all over the guests. No, uh, not over the guests. No, 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 no. It wasn't over the guests. It was um, one guy, Richard Clough, who looked like James. It was really kind of bizarre. He flew the plane right alongside the security fence and um, just beyond the garden, really low, and then dropped and dropped some of the ashes. But th just talking about that, I just need to reiterate a quick story about James, who uh, in Bindura one day, um, you know, you know how low they fly. And he, everybody was complaining about the heat at this lunch party and they're all standing outside. And so he decided to get and uh, fill his hopper with water and he oh. took off. No one knew he took off and he suddenly just dropped a whole hopper full of water oh. over the guests. And John Browning said to me, and there I was, I thought I was just about to have to get a new gin and tonic. And then it was suddenly, my glass was suddenly full again. <laughs> and he used to ski. Do you remember? He used to ski on the dams with his wheels. He was totally and absolutely fearless. Yeah, he was, which was why that was his downfall, unfortunately. Yeah. When I, when I was living in London, totally impoverished, living on Mile End Road back in the time when the East End of London was still very depressed, um, James came to England and he didn't know where I was living, but he only knew that I lived on Mile End Road. And <laughs> one night, it was in the middle of the night, all I heard was Pete Wood! Pete <laughs> Wood! Going up and down the road. And I looked out the window and there was James. And he found me. And we ended up spending the most incredible weekend in London. And that was the last time I ever saw him. 
Yeah, I think that was the trip just before he died, wasn't it? Yeah. Annabelle, let's 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 now talk about your book. Um, at the moment, it's got no working title. That's how new it is. Um, do you have an idea yeah. of what you're going to call this book? Um, I, you know, the, no, no, no. I mean, the, the a central part of where we are, you know, we have a huge mongongo tree in, our, in the middle of our house. So that might be um, part, you know, yes. under the mongongo tree or something, you yes. know, yes. along those lines. Even though yes. no one can pronounce mongongo, but mongongo. <laughs> it, it's anyway. a beautiful tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's maybe something like that, but I'm just I'm going to just finish the book first before I decide completely. Right. Yeah. Well, look, you know, having read the book or what you've written so far, at first impressions, I found that it was a very sad book. I mean, it's it's peppered throughout with real tragedy, not just about James, uh, your brother, but uh, your mother's family, your father dying young, your brother, your sister-in-law, your father-in-law. And that's just your side of the family. It doesn't even cover Chris's side. Uh, side. You know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. But ultimately, and here lies its strength, I think, is that it's a love story. Yeah, it is. It's about um, getting together. I mean, you know, there's two fundamental uh, narratives here. One is about getting together with a man who I have fancied and loved since day dot since I first met him when I was 21 and the second narrative is about how I um how the food food the natural world and gardening kind of led me to um you know it, it, I wanted to create this in Virginia and that was what was taken from me and since I've come here with Chris and lived with Chris which was seven years now I have managed to create a a version of this original vision I had in Virginia, but it's miles better Absolutely. because I'm not on my own. I'm with Chris, but I'm also doing it among people who will really hopefully benefit from, you know, all, all the communities, the impoverished communities around us will benefit from it, what I'm doing here. It's a story. It has a little bit of politics, not too much, uh, thank goodness. And you're going to hate me for this eat, pray, love. I mean, you're not constantly <laughs> breaking it down into food, love, spirituality, but I actually think it is broken down into several of those verticals. Well, yeah, I mean, um, as I say in the book, there are two things that, that you know, where Chris and I really, really connect, and those are over words. He's an incredible, incredible wordsmith, and he studied English literature himself. And then food. And as you saw, you know, he's got a great history with his own mother. Um, and then, of course, growing it. And he's a farmer. Yeah. And so it is it is, a, you know, the, the, the confluence where we ha where we've always come together as words and food. As, and that, that's a major theme in the book. Definitely. I mean, there's a brilliant story. You talk about the Collins Dictionary. Can you tell us? That? <laughs> oh, well, um, I was trying to explain to Chris. I was I was trying to tell him about a chap who I couldn't stand. And I was like, what's the word for? This was when I was 21, when we first met, or 22, actually. Yeah. And I was like, what's the word for the opposite of a misogynist? And, there, and of course, there wasn't one. But in those days, there is now. I mean, God forbid if women hated men like men hate women. And um, 
And so Chris, with his knowledge of derivation, the word derivations in Greek and Latin, and he made up a word. And then um, we, in a, in a sort of our cups late at night, decided to write a letter to Collins to tell them they were missing this word and suggest this one that he that Chris made up. And and he didn't want me to post the letter, but I did. And he heard back and Collins said, thank you very much um, for this for your you know contribution and it's going into the next it's edition. Fantastic. So, <laughs> fantastic. What that was, was the in word 1987 again? or six or something like that. Yeah. And what was uh, the... it's a misandrist, misandrist. Wow. Wow. So Chris hey, Chris said hey, a misandrosist. Uh, he said misandrosist, but in fact Colin said it's a misandrist. So yeah, they anyway, it's hilarious. It's uh, a hilarious story. So, okay, we'll get to Livingston and Zambia in a minute. Um you moved from the UK to the USA. You were doing some lobbying there as well. You were quite political, weren't you? When I wasn't lobbying. I, I started out my life as an investigative journalist and then um, and, and did some form of writing or communicating from there on in until I got sort of quite inadvertently roped into helping two of my very, very dear friends who I worked on a newspaper with in Zimbabwe back in the 80s, they were both tortured really badly and came to England with Amnesty International for um, psychological and physical therapy. And I helped raise money for them and got them in to meet with a few influencers who I knew in the United Kingdom. And I guess that was the sort of waking up of a consciousness in me to, uh, to help, you know, and seeing that the, our country, Zimbabwe, was heading down a road that wasn't necessarily... Mm -hmm. Um, very uh, happy, and so I then time for Zimbabwe, terribly fraught. Yeah, and so then, and then in 2000, I was in between contracts in in London and communication contracts, basically um, nothing too serious, and and all hell broke loose when when uh, Mugabe refused to adhere to the referendum results, and then the land invasion started, and then the, the, he started attacking the. You know the the same old you know the the rule of law the rules of democracy all went down the tube and so I in a, I threw myself in just knowing that I was in between jobs I just couldn't sit there and not get involved and I went on to social security for six months and just created a network of 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 um, information so I, I got information into the right places and then journalists started relying on me for breaking news. And then, um, and then I was picked up by a nonprofit who wanted me to go and build a network on the ground. And then, and then they, I ended up running that after three months. And then I was sent to Washington because the Americans were much more. Um, they were much. Their their relationship with Zimbabwe was much less complicated than the British, who were vacillated and. And, you know, they're not called perfidious Albion for nothing. And and so and then it turned out that the Americans were also much more generous in supporting our cause and causes like ours. So then I was posted there by um, my chairman, Lord Rennick, suggested, you know, why don't you move there? Because it's I'd have more traction in America than I would in London. And then and, the, and then I also helped steer a bill through the United States Congress into law, um, which which um, um, I, it was a, a law against the human rights abuses of the Mugabe regime. 
yeah. never signed into law. And it's still in place and still very effective. Yeah. And and I went out to stay with you at uh, yes. beautiful uh, stone house uh, that went back to the time of, the, what, the Civil War, was it? No, the Revolutionary War went oh, right really? back to the beginning. It was, on, it was built on a piece of land that was George Washington's half-brother owned it. Yeah, John Washington. Absolutely beautiful. And you were actually writing your memoirs back then, um, a different uh, ball game entirely. Uh, but I do yeah, remember, and I, I remember being very jealous because you had found yourself an agent in New York, and uh, but you dropped the agent in the end because the agent called you up and said, Annabelle, I want you to sleep with the servant. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> not true. No, Pete, that is not true. She said, I don't care, Annabelle, you sleep with the goddamn cook boy. <laughs> You're making that up, Pete. That is so not true. <laughs> No, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that no, my book just simply wasn't good enough to get published. But it was a very, I mean, you think that this guy has got a sadness to it. That book was very fraught. It was a political memoir. It was connected to the whole downfall of Zimbabwe, the downfall of our own family, the downfall of so many of our friends. And look, it was a lesson in endurance. It was a lesson in so in so many different ways, it was a catharsis more than anything else. But yeah. it wasn't publishable in the context of America, I'm afraid. And that was the truth of it. It wasn't because of any agent telling me to do anything untoward. So, and um, yeah, it's just one of those things. And there's always, you know, they often say that your first book has to be written and then you start again, you know, because you've got to get a lot of this stuff out. And at that same time, you were trying to set up that veterans retreat. Um, well, it wasn't orig originally. It was just a retreat, you know, and then the investor that got involved said he would get involved on the condition it was used for veterans. And and I just couldn't think of anything better to, you know, I mean, I couldn't think of a better, better recipients really than than veterans because it was all about using the land, the earth decent proper organic food you know and I by then had become a master naturalist which I had done a course over I did a program in the Virginian state and and yeah so it was all about just trying to use the land you know the, to heal and it's now an incredibly successful um, retreat which has become so successful they've, they've built another version of it in Arizona so it's becoming, you know, this alternative therapy yeah, of helping people with PTSD. actually happened, but mm. it was terribly painful for you at the time. I remember and you passed oh. through Hong Kong and stayed with me and it was just, you were broken. I know. And you say that, that. I was. That dream was stolen. But in fact, you know, incredibly, your dream now lives on in many ways. So you left mm. the US, you went to, stay, uh, to work at a place called Jack's Camp in, was that Namibia? No, that's in Botswana, in the Botswana. Kalahari and Desert. Then, yeah. And then uh, it, so after that, tell me briefly what happened that led you to Livingston. So, um, yeah, so I, I did leave America totally broken. I had two frozen shoulders when I got on a flight to leave the United States. And as you say, I, I first of all went to New Zealand to see my friend Louise and then came to see you. And, and I had been offered a job when I was in New Zealand to go to Jack's camp I didn't you know because before that I didn't know where I was going to end up I wasn't sure I was floating around like a loose balloon you know and um anyway so 
I was two weeks into this new role. I was the guest rela- I was the front of house sort of guest relations manager at Jack's Camp, which is in the middle of the Kalahari, in the middle of nowhere. And um, my, I found out that my sister-in-law, Catherine, who's married to my younger brother Paul, uh, her her uh, breast cancer had metastasized, and then she was given a very you know, it, it was it was a galloping cancer. So I'd be I, once again, you know, as I've said in the book, you know, every time I started on a new course, I was, you know, taken down by these dreadful shocks of people dying in our lives. And and Catherine, so this, so I sort of was on this great big desert adventure. It suddenly turned into a complete nightmare, and I just wanted to get out. And Chris and I had, Chris, my husband, now husband, and I had been liaising, and he had sort of been saying, well. There's always the option of Livingston. But when this happened, he said, well, why don't you move to Livingston, come here, so that I could at least get to Catherine and Paul if they needed my help. Because Paul, at that stage, his three children were all under 10. And, but by, you know, and so I got here, and so I did. I, I left Jack's camp very quickly and came to Livingston. And within two weeks of getting to Livingston, Chris and I got together, and two days later, Catherine died. So it was all very fast and very shocking. But... And it was a very bittersweet beginning to Chris and me, but it was also the moment in my instance where things, you know, at that time we were all totally and utterly bereft. And then suddenly it's you know, from that very, very sensitive and sad beginning. Yeah, it, it's turned it's slowly but surely, you know, and then, of course, Chris lost his former partner here. Who, who died of motor neuron disease. So he was on his own, I was on our own, I was on my own, and we both had, you know, we were, we're both in recovery, we, you know, from, and we, together we've sort of grown and healed and helped each other and as well as helping our community, yeah. And, and then you, you became the executive chef or chef de party at a place called the Elephant Cafe, which very quickly ended up getting the Luxury Travel Guide Awards Boutique Restaurant of the Year in 2017. Well, yeah, I I co-founded the Elephant Cafe. Yeah, I mean, I was the one. So it belonged to, um, it belonged to Safari Park Excellence, but they, and I came in with this food that I've created a cuisine called Bush Gourmet, which is basically using, um, it's born out of actually out of total impoverishment on my part, which is when I left America, I was totally broke and I'd lost everything. And I had started eating. I'd started a, based on a on a philosophy called sufficiency, which is it came out of Buckminster Fuller, who's an American inventor, and then via a woman who was a fundraiser and called Lynn Twist. And it's all about basically using what you have, the resources that you have. And we're surrounded by incredible wild fruits and incredible indigenous foods but none of these foods had ever been used in the context of a contemporary cuisine it's only all have been eaten traditionally or raw so I started experimenting in this tiny little kitchen in this house with no walls that we live in and and I started doing things and then um, Steve McCormack who owns the Elephant Cafe and I met at a wedding and I was telling him about my food and he had the courage to say well do you want to go into a collaboration? And then so I did. And yeah, it was the beginning of a whole new cuisine. And it won awards very, I mean, we won Zambia's best new restaurant well. after four months. 
So mm. I ate there with my mum when we passed through Livingston and it was just spectacular and what a setting and and what yeah, a you had these orphan elephants where you could feed the elephants and then sit down and have um, you know your homemade pates and this beautiful food and it and nothing that hit the table you know had traveled further than you know 50 miles really it was quite no 20 20 20 miles 20 yeah. miles i mean what a what a current thing really and vanity fair italia wrote an article about it i yeah no i was i was commissioned to write the story for them by so i wrote it about the elephant cafe yeah wonderful um, yeah and then and then the cooks cook in the united oh there's lots of I mean, it's it's a very contemporary place, and 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 the cuisine is, you know, it's now all about sustainable food. It's about a small footprint. It's and so we kind of got in there, um, unknowingly, really. We, I was just fulfilling what I want, you know. I was fulfilling a dream and and experimenting in the kitchen, so I guess. And then, you know, it was a wonderful thing to do, actually. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of put Livingston on the map in many ways, as far as... <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> um, I don't know about that, but Vic Falls puts it on, Victoria Falls puts sure. it on the map. But it well, certainly gave a, Falls, it, it yeah. added a new angle to Livingston. And Livingston was never known for food before, and now it's becoming more so, I guess. Yeah. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about Chris. Um, I don't want to embarrass you too much, but, you know, it's a great <laughs> love affair. Love story, I mean, not love affair, love story. Uh, but it's an intellectual love story as well. Um, and he's not your, he's quite a dark horse. He's not your usual run-of-the-mill farmer. Um, and th- what I want to ask you about, tell me something about the slab. You know, it's a bit the like sl- Rocky Horror Picture Show, come up and see me on the slab. <laughs> I haven't even thought about that. Yes, um, the slab. So Chris, when Chris moved here with Jenny, um, both of them had each lost their farm in Zimbabwe to this, these government-sponsored invasions. And so they decided they were they were dating and they decided to come here together. And, and they moved onto the slab together in 2002. But they had to start from scratch. They had to borrow 100% from the bank. So Chris... Um, and then they leased the farm to begin with and then bought the less expensive version of it. It what doesn't have any river frontage. The river frontage, of course, is the most expensive. And so he was given 20 days to build a place um, to live. And so he put down this concrete slab under this huge mongongo nut tree and it cost him $1,700 to build a house. And, and so he put the slab down, he put these papyrus mats up as walls and Jenny had a really fantastic sensibility for decorating. And so it was this incredible place with Persian carpets and, you know. And, and, and yet the and, outside was inside, the inside was outside. Yeah, and that was based on a, an Australian architect called Glenn Merkett. He had, Chris Chris used to, well, in a former life, used to farm and create carpet. furniture and all sorts of things. He's done it many different things in his life. Grand Designs Australia. <laughs> and, well, and it's not like it's grand, but you know, because I stayed with you. The the first thing you know, you, from the outside, you think, God, this is a bit of a mud hut. And then you walk in, <laughs> you know, and you see how clever it is. You know, it has cantilevered walls that catch the the breeze, so that you don't have to have air conditioning. Uh, I just thought it was absolutely remarkable, really. 
Well, that, air conditioning is, is I mean, we now, you, you, in fact, you do have to have air conditioning, but we have that in an office. He has his in the, at the barns. I have mine here in an office. But it is, I mean, to live on, you can eat, you, you know, because of the air coming through. It's an incredible, tiny little place. And then, um, but so, yeah, so he built, and so it's called the slab because it was original, in its original rendition, you know, rendering, it was a, it was a slab with, First of all, reed mats, and then with these corrugated iron sheet walls that all open. But they so, and then the kitchen, of course, had, has has absolutely, you know, there's nothing. There's just half walls and fresh air and lots of fauna. But, and I mean, uh, I'm lot, yeah, the, from the upper Zambezi Valley, you know. <laughs> that I had didn't have a roof, which was lovely. <laughs> it was absolutely lovely. Yeah, now we um, we're, we're renovating now, so it's all tree, tree frogs whistling as you showered. <laughs> you had to sort of be careful oh, so nice. down to have a poo in case there was a cobra sort of wrapped <laughs> around the toilet <laughs> but um we well snakes are as you know snakes are have been um they come and go at this place <laughs> quite often and um yeah we've had a few incidents with snakes listen, Annabelle, you're you know we're already getting into 35 minutes so i just like you're oh my a, gosh you're a blogger you're a chef you're a lover you're a housewife you're a raconteur you're an entrepreneur and now you're a philanthropist tell us about <laughs> no. this project please um it's not so much a philanthropist i wouldn't say that because we're not we're not doing it with our own money we are what we're doing is we're just trying to involve we're both very very interested in the upliftment of these extremely impoverished uh, communities that are around our farm in Zambia. And having been through what we've been through, having the loss of our farms in Zimbabwe, uh, losing absolutely everything in America, and Chris the same, you know, he had to start from scratch here. We both are very sensitive to those who have nothing. And so what we're trying to do, because of this food is all connected to um, traditional indigenous ingredients, wild. I've set up little communities of foragers who are paid to collect these wild fruits and nuts. And at the same time, we've put in, we're putting in, you we've put in wells with the help of American fundraisers and friends of mine. And then we've put in this preschool, which has now become a school with the help of fundraising from America. And we're matching those funds. And uh, there are so many single mothers I employ in this area. I employ mainly single mothers in the kitchen. We're training. Chris is cha training in his workshops with the with the guys, you know, to welding. And, and then we are about to embark on creating gardens among the community in order to feed their own families. And then I'll take the excess for this new kitchen that I'm building because I'm about to open my own food establishment and I call it that because <laughs> I call it that because we're creating wild products for sale but we're also going to be offering a food experience out the front. It's incredible yeah, and, so and if anyone wants to find out more about uh, Annabelle she has a website called savannabelle.com that's s-a-v-a-n-n-a-b-e-l.com um, look, Annabelle, I think we better end off now. Um, you know, congratulations on just about on everything you're doing. I'm so chuffed that things are going well for you. I hope the book is a great success. I'm looking forward to reading the end product. Um, and we must catch up again soon. Well, thank you so much, Pete. And it's been such a privilege to, to be able to talk to you. I really appreciate you asking me to come on to your show. You're very, very good at what you do. 
And um, thanks, Pete. Yeah, and um, I look forward to staying in touch too. Annabelle, that was that's Annabelle Hughes, one of my oldest friends in the world, living at large in Zambia. Annabelle, thanks a lot. <laughs> All right, Pete. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.